I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect from, from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be the one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Can you hear me? Is my mic on? All right, good. Just making sure. Uh, for those of you who are a bit like me, uh, whenever I take the time to actually pick up the Bible uh, and read a passage like John 17, it can be an incredibly frustrating experience. I can honestly summarize the very first coherent thought that comes into my head almost any time I read or hear a Bible passage read. Here it is. It's a really academic, scholarly thought for you. <laughs> Uh, that's really weird. Really weird. Not just that's weird, but that's really weird. Uh, just look at our passage that we just read today. Look at uh, verse 21. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Besides an overabundance of personal pronouns, what's this business with who being in who, and how does this lead to the hope that the world would believe that God sent Jesus. After reading a passage like this, I must confess that I feel a, a bit uh, like a boxer who's stepped out of the ring facing uh, Mike Tyson, taking the same right hook to the face over and over and over again. I'm dizzy and I'm confused. Now, the takeaway from today's sermon is not the idea that the Bible is weird. I don't think Richard will invite me back to preach if that is the takeaway from today's sermon, even though it's true. I'm not suggesting, for example, that the next time Adele reads uh, our Bible passage that she ends by saying the really weird word of the Lord, praise be to God. But I do want to underscore that the Bible should strike us as weird because at a very fundamental level, there's a vast difference between the world of the Bible, the world of the text, and today's world. Now, unfortunately, today I can't promise to sort of uh, hold all the keys to bridging this divide between the world of the text and today's world. Uh, but what I can do, I think, is offer us one uh, way to help us overcome this divide, 
especially as it pertains to the Gospel of John in particular. So here's what I'm getting at. Uh, When reading the Gospel of John, I think we need to take into consideration the type of literature it is that we're reading. Put a bit differently, considering what literary genre the Gospel of John belongs to will help us understand its aim, its purpose, and therefore its meaning. A uh, A couple of weeks ago, my friend Scott and I went to the cinema to watch the new iteration of the Halloween franchise, the 40 year anniversary. Um, As soon as the opening scene started rolling, the well-known Halloween theme song started playing to set the mood of the movie. And for those who are familiar with the theme music, the music sort of signals to us listeners that what we're about to watch is a type of movie that is filled with suspense, fright, and a little bit of gore. And because Scott and I understood that the type of movie we were watching was a horror flick, Uh, intuitively, we were enabled to watch and understand some of the basic features of the film. The genre of the film, in other words, determined its function. It determined our watching experience. I think the same holds true whenever we're reading an ancient text, like the Gospel of John, or any text for that matter. Paying attention to the form of literature that we read is necessary if we're going to understand its function. The genre of literature signals uh, to us readers what type of interpretive lens we need to have if we're to view the text sort of on its own terms. Now, how is this relevant to reading the Gospel of John and John 17 in particular? Uh, Briefly, let me just state, and I sort of hope you just sort of take me at my word uh, here because I don't have time to defend this claim. But I just hope that you'll take me at my word that the majority of biblical scholars think that the literary genre of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is what's known as an ancient bios, an ancient biography. And what's important to underscore about ancient biographies, such as John's Gospel, is that they tend to focus their narrative portrait on just one character in particular, rather than developing uh, multiple characters. In essence, ancient biographies are chiefly concerned with characterizing their main character, concealing and revealing that character's virtues, that character's great deeds, their hopes, their dreams, and their values. As such, ancient biographies tend to stress how their main character died, since how a person died said a lot about a person in antiquity. Basically, therefore, when we're reading a work like the Gospel of John that narrates the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the chief protagonist of that story, a good question to sort of always have in the back of our minds is how does this or that story within John's Gospel, how does this or that episode, this or that prayer characterize God or God's agent, Jesus? What does this or that story tell us about what God values and who He is? So, if we turn our attention to the passage that we read today, um, for those of you who are following along, I think, again, it's on page 1085, I think we can approach John 17, 13 to 23 with that same question, with that same set of interpretive lens. We find ourselves encountering a passage that reveals significant detail as to who the Gospel of John understood Jesus to be and God to be and what values they held. So, in the remainder of our time together this morning, I want to just develop uh, one observation. We could, of course, make a lot of observations about this really weird text, um, but I just want to focus on on one observation and try to develop 
uh, that along these lines uh, before I close with offering some brief reflections on how this relates to our series on prayer that we've been uh, having over the past several weeks. Uh, The observation comes from the second half of verse 23, uh, where Jesus details the purpose of his prayer to uh, the Father. He says, uh, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The observation I want to make is is incredibly simple here. Uh, For the Gospel of John, God is someone who loves the world. Yes, I'm talking about love. Uh, Love. Ugh. For many of us, myself included, the very idea of of hearing a talk, or in my case, giving a talk about love is a bit uh, exhausting. Uh, love seems too shallow a matter. It's, it's not sturdy enough. Uh, perhaps it's overemphasized so that we fail to be captured by it anymore. It's a concept so familiar that the very idea of breathing new life into it is met with a gaze of suspicion. Its meaning is apparently obvious. On the other hand, several key New Testament passages uh, It is clear in several key New Testament passages that neither Jesus nor the apostolic writers trusted the power of words, like agapao, one of our words for love, to carry the full freight of what they meant by love. For example, in John 13 and John 15, Jesus did not simply say, love one another, as if the use of the verb love would make all things clear. Rather, he said, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, Jesus put forth his entire life as the defining pattern for the love that he commands. Indeed, it seems to me that there's this sort of widespread cultural dispute, uh, both inside and outside of church walls, over what love is. Uh, If you can't tell, I'm an American from uh, your accent. Um, uh, In my own American context, uh, definitions of love are centered on the sort of controversial uh, binaries of tolerance and intolerance. Uh, Many of us have been told that since love is a verb, uh, love itself is an action or a choice. Uh, By this logic, I think we have too easily concluded that love comes into existence in the exact moment we act to help someone. If we have helped them, then by definition, we have loved. I want to suggest uh, this morning that the Gospel of John paints a slightly different picture as to what constitutes love, and and this is the key idea I'm sort of getting at for today. Uh, For John's Gospel, and in fact, I think for several other passages in the New Testament, love is something that comes prior to, it's something that resides beneath the action that it sponsors. Love is something prior to and resides beneath the action that it sponsors. Love, I think, is a matter of the heart, a disposition that is deeper and longer-lasting than the ephemeral actions we undertake. For example, consider uh, John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in the, uh, the famous uh, Bible verse in perhaps the entire English-speaking world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world with the result that, hoste in Greek, with the result that he gave his only son. This text highlights that love temporally precedes its action. God's love for the world is something that existed within him before he decided to express that love in the giving of his son. 
Therefore, love, although it is indeed related to action, it is something distinct from it. To tip my hand a bit, I'm, I'm convinced that love involves something that is sort of subterranean in the human heart, something that exists deep within the divine chamber of the heart. Older writers than me uh, refer to this divine chamber as the affections. But if my reading of John 3.16 is, is not convincing to you, that's fine. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Uh, <laughs> uh, consider Romans uh, 5.8, uh, where Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, love was something already residing in God, something already part of God's character long before God proved it or demonstrated it in the act of giving his son. So this idea that love and action are related but distinct, I don't think it's uh, merely a technical point. Uh, The point opens up uh, an inverse truth that many of us might find hard to accept. If love and helpful actions are distinct from each other, then it may be possible, sadly, for us to be doing helpful deeds without really being people of love underneath it all, without having experienced the deep transformation of the heart in love. In short, good deeds may arise from motives other than love. I think those among us uh, who are in the medical field uh, can witness to this truth. There there are nurses and doctors out there who night in and night out perform uh, deeds uh, that are good and helpful without having or desiring uh, any particular relationship with their patients. Um, Really, anyone whose profession deals a lot with helping people can testify that the motivation to help people does not always come from a motivation of love. The Apostle Paul, I think, attested this idea as well. Do you remember what he says in the uh, famous love chapter that we hear at weddings a lot? First, uh, one Corinthians, sorry, I'll use the, uh, the British lingo here. One Corinthians, not first Corinthians. One Corinthians 13, three. He said, if I give away all of my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Thus, one may be functioning effectively in ministry and may be acting so benevolently as to give away all of one's possessions and still not have love, according to Paul, at least. So, for John, for the Gospel of John, and for Paul, it seems, love, including God's love for the world, is something that is subterranean in the human heart, or in the heart. What's also interesting, I think, uh, about, God, about John's gospel is how that gospel uh, explains the word, uh, the world, uh, ha cosmos in Greek, uh, how that gospel, or what that gospel means when it speaks using the term the world. Uh, remember, our primary observation uh, today is that God loves the world. At first glance, I think this appears to be uh, obvious, uh, uh, something that doesn't need developed, Uh, It's obviously a universal declaration that God possesses love for all humans, regardless of of race, class, or any other sort of social distinctions that we might make. Um, And I think within the wider discourse of Christian theology, that that is certainly true. I don't want to deny that. But I think the precise emphasis in John's gospel, when it speaks using the term world, is a little bit different, slightly different. The world in John's gospel is precisely those who do not know God 
or those who are explicitly hostile to and hate God, God's enemies, we might say. Consider briefly these verses from John's gospel that talk about uh, the world and how it describes the world. John 1.10, he was in the world, uh, that is Jesus, Jesus was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. John 7.7, Jesus speaking again, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. John 14.17, this is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. John 17, 25, righteous father, the world does not know you. Thus, this idea that we find in John 17, that God loves the world, is simultaneously incredibly simple, but yet incredibly deep, I think. As one scholar put it uh, more broadly, uh, the Gospel of John is a stream shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim. It's a stream shallow enough for a child to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim. The idea that God loves the world ceases to be shallow when we appreciate that God's love is not just this notion that He's good to us, but that he holds an affectionate disposition towards us in his heart. And not just us, but especially, and in particular, those who do not care, know, or even are hostile and hate God. So, to close this morning, I want to briefly reflect on the implications of uh, this idea of there being a distinction between love and action uh, for uh, our series on prayer. So the implications of our, of our talk this morning as it relates to prayer. Uh, just three brief observations, and then I'll quit talking. Uh, first, uh, one of the purposes, I think, in this series of prayer over the past several weeks was for us to start thinking about different ways that we as individuals can begin to pray or we can improve our prayer lives. Uh, a passage like John 17, I think, is a good one to look at in this regard because it reveals that the content of Jesus' prayer was framed with a purpose or an end goal in mind, namely, that the world would know God, uh, would know that God loves them. And so as we reflect uh, in this series on what it is we should pray for, uh, perhaps we should also be asking ourselves how the content of our prayers relate to this end goal. And so I ask uh, rhetorically, how are the, are, are the requests we make to God framed according to what God values? Perhaps a good exercise uh, for those of you who actually write out your prayers uh, is to analyze the content of your prayers and question how they relate to God's dreams and God's hopes and God's purposes for the world. Uh, second, I think another purpose of this series on prayer is that it provides an opportunity for us collectively uh, as a faith community, for those of us who identify as a faith community here, I think it provides us an opportunity to evaluate our identity and the culture of prayer that we, re that we create within these walls. Um, one of the reasons that my wife and I first uh, continued to come to this church was uh, because of this church's emphasis on praying for the world uh, during uh, prayer times. 
um, growing up as we did in an American uh, context, um, uh, I, I can't personally recall a single time uh, my church congregation focused uh, on another country's uh, problems or, or tribulations during their prayer time. Now, I must confess that one of the reasons we started coming here was because of the prayer. The other reason is because some of you bring dogs to church, and I absolutely love dogs. I promised my wife that I would mention my dog, Meatloaf, in our sermon, uh, so there it is. Uh, the content of our prayers uh, reveals a lot about who we are because our prayers reflect what we value in life. Accordingly, I just want to take a moment to challenge us in this particular faith community. For those of you who, who identify as part of this faith community, uh, let's keep valuing others uh, during our prayer times. I, I like that we not only focus on approaching God with our own needs, which is very important, and we need to keep doing that as well, but uh, I'd like us to also keep uh, taking the time to express our affection for the world, for those who don't act, speak, or pray like us. Sound good? Cool. And finally, three, and then I'll, uh, sorry, I, I also lecture to undergraduate students, so every now and then I drop something like cool, just to sound cool. <laughs> um, and finally, uh, three, I think the sermon's emphasis on there being a distinction between uh, love and action challenges us to the old-fashioned prayerful gut check. Uh, it challenges us to become self-aware in our social interactions with our, our spouses, our children, and any other sort of social relationship you can think of. Self-awareness. On paper, again, we may indeed be loving in the sense that we're doing good to others, that we're good to our, our wife or our husband, or we're good to our children. Uh, but sometimes I think a spouse or a child does not feel love or cannot detect love by their spouse or their parents because there's a disconnect between our good actions and our affectionate dispositions. Not all good deeds come from a motivation of love. So, uh, in your prayers uh, this week, um, I challenge us to survey our affections, to survey the disposition of our hearts towards others. Let's pray. Father, we join the author of Ephesians in offering up this request from Ephesians 3.19 Father, we seek to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.